In this module, we're discussing what has been called the new racism, subtle racism, everyday racism, or colorblind racism. Race neutrality does not equate to racial equality. Race neutrality does not equate to racial equality. In fact, it often leads to just the opposite. But how can that be? Shouldn't we strive to be in a world where race doesn't matter? Folks who ask this question in an argumentative way might point to a familiar quote to support their belief. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. Of course, we want to live in a world where race does not define outcomes, but we do. To act otherwise or act as if race does not have very real material consequences is, in fact, racist. The sociologist Eduardo Bonilla Silva writes about how folks and systems who profess to be colorblind still reinforce and enact racism. The same goes for other lines of identity as well. You'll read some of Bonilla Silva's thoughts in the chapter on colorblind racism that I provided. In many professional settings, racism is frowned upon. No one wants to be called a racist. That's why you have companies like Wells Fargo who have track records of systemic racism and anti-black policies sending you emails saying black lives matter. Racism can be seen and manifest in many ways. It's not just someone hurling a racial slur. It's also more subtle in microaggressions. It's also in policies. It's also in our hiring practices. This week, we hear from Dr. Roman Liera as he describes how we might move beyond a culture of niceness in faculty hiring specifically, but hiring practices in general to advance racial equity. All right, so today uh, for this module, I believe it's module six, um, we have Dr. Roman Liera. Um, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, I'm Roman Liera. I am originally from Los Angeles. My pronouns is are he, him, and his. Um, I am currently an assistant professor at Monterey State University. Uh, before then, I was at USC, uh, same cohort as, as, as Antar in the PhD uh, <laughs> program at USC. So, um, I guess a little bit more in terms of like my personal background. I, as I mentioned, I'm from LA. Uh, I'm a son of um, Mexican immigrant parents uh, who immigrated from Mexico and they settled in LA, uh, specifically San Fernando Valley. Um, I have two older siblings, uh, older brother and older sister, um, who are eight and seven years older than I am. So I think I mentioned that because I think it impacts the way I grew up. Um, I always yeah. looked up to them, but then when they got like around teenage, um, years and older, they didn't want to hang out with their younger brother. <laughs> so it was always like, I want your attention, but I think it would have maybe, what it taught me, it made me uh, stay at home, obviously with my parents, but uh, my parents were always about my uncles and my aunts. And they always had like storytelling time, uh, meaning yeah. that they always will catch up in terms of like immigrating to the United States, navigating uh, the United States as immigrants, 
um, not knowing English and how they survive. At the time, I didn't have the language that I'm using now, but I think for me, um, it taught me like the value of storytelling and listening, which really impacted the way I do my research, the way I engage with participants, the way I talk to people. And I think the value of relationships and community, I think that's, that's, that's why I share that. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's a little bit about me. I can see, I don't know if you can see it, but I'm a big basketball fan. Um, that keeps me, keeps me, um, stable in, in my, in my life around research and work. Awesome. Thank, thank you for that, Roman. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously this will be, just be a podcast. I won't be able to see it, but Roman is a Lakers fan. Um, full disclosure, I kind of hopped on the Lakers, what is it, like four years ago. Uh, but I feel like that's enough time, so it's not. I'm not too much of a bandwagoner. Um, so Roman and I catch up talking about the Lakers fairly often. And we hooped together a few times back in the yeah. day. Yeah. <laughs> back in the day, back at USC. Um, but yeah, and you already kind of touched on it a bit. I was going to ask about how your identity shapes your research. So thanks for sharing that about uh, storytelling. Um, I find it so interesting, just like the, you know, for like someone who's listening, they're like, okay, where is this guy going with this? But it's so interesting how identity shapes how we go about research and what we find interesting, right? Right. Um, so can you, can you talk a little bit about like, just what, what do you, what type of stuff do you research? So uh, for my class, they would have read uh, your piece in AERJ, but generally, what, how would you describe your research agenda? Yeah, so my research program really, I designed it to study higher education as a racial, racialized organization, meaning that I go into, into my own research with the, with the assumption that race and racism and racialization is real. Um, yeah. And then because it is real um, in the United States, uh, we need to consider the history of, of race and racism within how it shaped higher education, right? Yeah. Uh, we need that. Um, the universities that we work in or we, we go to school, at least for me, Montclair State University and USC, they are predominantly white institutions, meaning that these universities are designed with intention to advance the interests of white people. Um, and a lot of times these universities were uh, designed and developed through uh, uh, slave um, labor, uh, stolen land, native land, um, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, um, that with that assumption, I go in trying to understand how not only the historical aspect, but currently in modern days, how are these processes that we rely on, specifically faculty administration, like faculty hiring, uh, admissions, uh, graduate education, et cetera, how are these all still uh, embedded in these wide social cultural norms and how are they informing faculty members to hire faculty, for example, um, and how they perpetuate racial inequality. So that's what my research agenda is. I study the organizational processes that we take for granted, but also yeah. um, they perpetuate, but also how can we leverage them to advance racial justice and racial equity? Awesome. And, and I think, uh, you know, like just before we started recording, I was telling Roman like how amazing I think his paper is it really showing how seemingly race neutral practices or policies are inherently racialized, racist, and like you said, perpetuate um, racism, right? Mm -hmm. And I think your, your paper is a, you know, a model work in showing that. Uh, so thank you for your work about that. Um, I guess generally before we get too deep into it, you know, your, your paper is largely about faculty hiring, right? And faculty processes. Now, you know, for my class, I got folks who are, you know, um, working, interested in working in student life, working in, you know, student, student affairs, uh, enrollment, you know, um, di different parts, different aspects of higher education. I mean, is this just faculty hiring or would you say it, it can, you know, can we use some of your implications beyond uh, the faculty hiring aspect? I think they can be used beyond, um, yeah. and, and I think beyond, but also with, bounded within what I'm studying. One, it could be used in a lot of higher scenarios, 
not yeah. just the faculty body, but also uh, because it is evaluation, um, a lot of people are engaging in evaluation decision-making at different levels, faculty, administration, uh, staff, right? Like yeah. I mentioned, um, admissions. Admissions can look very different in different universities. Um, in some places, mm -hmm. staff, right, admitting students. In other places, more faculty depending on university. So I think a lot of these things, uh, in terms of implications for practice, can be used by different people. I think yeah. um, Thinking about it right now, one of the things that I think I, I want to emphasize, and I think I need to do a better job, is that, as I mentioned in the beginning, my interest was to understand a, a race-neutral process, or at least a perceived race-neutral process, and it happened to be faculty hiring. It could have been yeah. something else, right? So I think my goal was to understand how this process uh, is, is perceived to be race-neutral, but it really propitious inequalities and how it impacts the organizational culture, and it just happened to be that in this study, I did focus on faculty hiring. Yeah, no, awesome, and and yeah, I think even even beyond higher ed, right? Um, mm -hmm. I think your your study has implications. Like, you know, if you're it, it, it race matters, right? Like, it's a it's a social construction with very real ramifications, right? So, if you're going about it um, in a race neutral manner, and I think you do this beautifully in your piece, it's an easy way to not change what you're doing, right? So, if you are in a predominantly white institution or a predominantly white workplace, what have you? Um, saying you're being race neutral is another way. I think you show this uh, really nicely. Another way to kind of reinscribe the status quo. Right, and at this university, it, it was the it, it was looking at the campus culture, but they named it right. They named it the culture of niceness because I didn't go in there thinking about I'm gonna study the culture of niceness because I didn't know that it existed there. And so I started yeah. collecting the data, especially the observation data was I think the power to really understand it is a camp it's a racist culture, but here it's a racist culture of niceness. That's yeah. embedded in whiteness and anti-blackness. Even though I don't identify anti-blackness in paper, I think it's very intertwined with whiteness. Um, so I think um, I, I, I say that because, um, like going back to your initial question, I think it is um, related to other aspects in higher education and even outside the, like, the academy that's not hiring because it's, it's embedded in the culture, right? And a lot of yeah. spaces it's a racist culture. Um, that, that allows um, one to start talking about culture, at least in this place. Um, the culture nexus meant that if we're going to talk about race, we have to do it in a way that doesn't make people uncomfortable, right? And a lot mm. of times the people was the people in power, in this case, the, the white faculty or the white administrators, even the white students. Like, if you make people uncomfortable, then you're, it's your bad. You're the yeah. troublemaker, right? So I think, I think having those conversations, at least within this case study, it was that it was a long-term intervention, as, as Antoine mentioned in the beginning, uh, who you are really matters. Um, so in, in, the, in the paper, I was able to identify how people, primarily people of color, were ready beyond just having initial conversations, where a lot of the white faculty really had to negotiate their own white fragility of yeah. these issues. So I think it does matter who to consider who you are, but also your, your larger context, how you're situated within your campus culture. Totally, totally. Yeah, that, that's super helpful. And I I mean, and I was going to ask, like, you know, um, how did you come upon the concept of niceness, right? Because I feel like that's a great way of describing it, right? Um, but, you know, if, if, you know, say, I mean, I know all my students will read this piece, right? Um, but say someone, <laughs> say someone stops at the title or stops at the abstract, and they, they say, hey, like, what's wrong with being nice? You know, like, 
how is being nice inherently uh, white or inherently racist? What's what's wrong with that? Why is that a why, shouldn't we be nice? Right. How would you respond to that uh, person outside of saying, well, maybe you should actually read the article? <laughs> right. You know, and it's funny because when I was clicking the data, one of the faculty who happened to be a Latino faculty in these in, in, in inquiry interventions or in these workshops that I talk about, he had raised like, you know, I want to make sure that we are clear that we're not saying that being nice is a problem, right? Of course, you want to be nice collegial with your faculty. The problem is that it creates a division and privileges certain people. Especially yeah. with specific topics. Like we could be nice when we're talking about Lakers or whatever. We could be nice when we're talking about our curriculum. But when it comes to something that is really um, an issue in our institution, like race and racism, when it's being used to advantage people and silence other people, um, that's when it's the issue, right? So, yeah. in itself, uh, niceness, um, I don't think it's the problem. But when it's detached and it's assumed that it's a race neutral concept, that's mm-hmm. a problem, right? That's when we have to start questioning. Niceness is problematic because it's benefiting certain people at the expense of others, right? Yeah. So, so that's what I would say. I think, um, of course, I wouldn't be nice to my colleagues, but at the same time, let's not be nice at the expense of letting these systemic inequalities persist only because you want me to be collegial. I love that. Yeah, let, let's not be nice at ex- at the expense of right. Let's not be right. nice at the expense of you know letting racism continue to occur. You know, let's exactly. not be nice at the expense of, you know, not recruiting any black and Latinx students, you know? Um, right. And then when you, and if you really want to talk about niceness, like, okay, we're, we're colleagues, right? But when you are saying it's okay to continue doing this at, the, at my expense, for example, a, a good example is uh, teaching evaluation. Um, yeah. A lot of times um, how teaching evaluations are used um, tends to be, um, it, it creates inequalities because a lot of times faculty of color have a, a smaller, um, what is it called, a smaller area for error, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning that uh, I'm making negative evaluations, but if I'm not producing what you expect me to produce, then they, they'll can be used to address or, 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 um, or I don't want to say punish, but I guess it's punish me, right, in terms of taking yeah. Whereas my white colleagues, they may have a larger error um, um, a, a, a space for forever, right? Mm-hmm. I think all that to say is like if we're operating with niceness within this context, I won't be able to address those issues because there are patterns, right? We have data on that. So I think I think in that case, another example of why niceness is is to be problematic when when it's being used in, in this case, silence me for trying to highlight a racial pattern where we have data. Um, yeah. To support. Not totally, man. And I, I think one of the things you, you get at and talk about is how like niceness is weaponized, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we use, we almost, you know, have folks who wield niceness and it's also nice for who, you know, right. um, being in these institutions and a lot of times and in these spaces isn't nice for us, you know? Right. And so we're, we're constantly have to change and deform uh, ourselves in order to meet the almost nice expectation of our um, white colleagues, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, someone had mentioned that that um, this place was set in California. It was mm-hmm. it was in Southern California, and then someone was saying that this university was like taking from Minnesota whiteness um, and just helicopter in and drop into the middle of California. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it brought like those those because um, a lot of times when you think about niceness, whether it's from from literature or you, you oftentimes a lot of people call it Minnesota niceness. So there's mid Midwestern niceness. Yeah, where um, 
everybody's nice, but they're kind of like, okay, it reminds me of like microaggression sometimes. Like, they, they aggressively poke you, poke you, but yeah. in a very nice way that makes you immobile and say, how do I address this? Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to say that what you're doing with me because you said it in a way that's very nice. And people are like, mm. really? It was just, it was just like, that's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, that that's, that's the crazy part about it, right? Like in terms of like trying to understand, not just as a researcher, but also someone who experiences this. Like how do you navigate these spaces around niceness where where you as a person of color, um, you know it's happening to you, but how do you address it at a policy level or, or, or yeah. at a practice level where you want to make changes, right? Yeah. Culture is so elusive. Like even in, in the scholarship, people talk about organizational culture. Why study when we don't really have a common definition around it? Mm. When when it's hard to like empirically or quantify it. <laughs> yeah. So that's 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 I think that's the that's the interesting aspect for me, but also like a challenging aspect of how do I study it, but also how do I prove to my reader and to policymakers that this stuff exists and it's yeah. equality. Yeah, and also like we still have to, to an extent, you know, play the game, right? Like we mm-hmm. have to say these things in a way that's palatable to people in power, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. Even if what we're saying is uncomfortable, we we you know, and I think that's what niceness I think beautifully encapsulates. You know, like sometimes we need these uncomfortable conversations. Sometimes it needs to be, hey, your program, you know, um, your your department or whatever doesn't have any. You know, like your your program department is only populated with like white people, white women, you know, you can't say you value diversity. You know, like you just can't right. you can be the nicest right. person we, we can share, you know, we can grab coffee, this, that and the third. But if your department looks like that, if your syllabus looks like this, when you're not including the voices of scholars of color, um, you can be as nice as you want to be. You can make the best banana bread ever, you know, <laughs> but, you know, we need to have a serious conversation about uh, how you think about race and your racial ideologies and what is um, narrowing your vision as a scholar, as a um, student affairs professional, as an enrollment officer, what have you, um, so that you've, you, do, you see nothing wrong with that picture, you know? Um, and those conversations are inherently uncomfortable for folks who, um, kind of have these racist ideologies, right? Right. No, I agree. And I think it, it remind, your comment reminds me of this. And I think it's a it's an aspect of, of niceness, too. I think it is. Um, when people have this idea like, oh, you know, you had uh, what you said it was racist, or what you're, even though you change the curriculum or program, it's still producing inequalities because you're discriminating um, Black students or discriminating Latin students, for example. Uh, but people go, but my intention was not to do that. And then when people really harpen the idea of the intention, I feel like people use mm. it to like circumvent. Well, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't hold me accountable because it was, it was a, the intent was there, right? But I think that's yeah. really one example of how niceness is, is really um, creating this space where the, the idea of intention, like the white uh, savior type or the the white, um, what is it called? Uh, not not ignorance, but like um, someone who's trying to help you, but because they're they well intended. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, I think at least for me, like the, the, at least when I hear uh, conversations around um, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and that's a different conversation. We just put them all together. Yeah. Um, but like the idea of intentionality, right? Um, well, you can't come at me because I was my intention was not that, and I go, well, you know, but it was. It was. <laughs> but look at what the outcomes are, right? 
Yeah. So even in those conversations, like how how does Nike play, right? Like when they said white colleagues say, well, you know, I wasn't intending for that, like, and then and then you don't know how they're gonna respond. Like, how do I say it in a way that it's not gonna make me feel horrible? Should I care? Yeah. <laughs> because my best interest is for addressing inequality. So why should I mm-hmm. care about your feelings if we're really as a collective trying to address these inequalities? Yeah. No, and that's something I struggle with even more uh, these days, right? Like mm-hmm. I just. Um, and, and it's, uh, I mean, I hope not, but I mean, there's certain conversations I'm just not going to have, you know, and I'll be explicit, way more explicit or upfront than I will, than I was earlier. Right. <laughs> but and it's, right. and it's also me realizing like, wow, like, I hope I'm not burning bridges, but this is, I don't know. And they think about how the way me trying to speak truth in a way, um, and even trying to be nice about how I speak truth may have repercussions for me professionally you know uh, it's how what niceness is uh it, yeah this is so so pertinent and i think also in cincinnati there's also the whole midwest you know midwest nice like you said and there's also cincinnati nice you know so mm-hmm. i think it's something we're we're definitely struggling with um there, there's a quote i want to kind of ask you about um yeah. just because you know in this uh week we're talking with this module we're talking about you know the new racism subtle racism microaggressions right and yeah. you pull heavily from eduardo bonilla silva um yeah. which is you know ties perfectly into this week but you say faculty hiring does not need to be explicitly racist to exclude minoritized groups so what's wrong with like a race neutral approach to hiring or just acting like racism a big deal in like an office yeah it's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things that's wrong with it but <laughs> <laughs> it's a big question no, it is a big question. And then um, I'm thinking a lot about this right now because I'm right now, right now writing a paper about uh, decoupling and, and coupling mm-hmm. routines. So when we think about hiring, it's something that we oftentimes don't go and revisit the tools, right? And this, yeah. uh, a lot of times, like, well, we've been doing hiring like this. Like, I know how to hire people because I just have the experience. Like, this is the way we recruit. This is the way that we evaluate. And a lot of times, a lot of evaluation criteria tends to use like quantitative rankings, but without yeah. explanations or room to have a conversation. So a, a lot of the literature, especially uh, more recent literature, uh, not just in hiring, in fact, in hiring, but uh, hiring in general and evaluation, they talk about how those in power tend to uh, rely a lot on their preferences and, and um, a lot of like the social aspects of, can I relate to this person? Is this something yeah. that makes me feel comfortable, right? Um, and speaking about Eduardo Bonilla Silva, he has this, um, I think it was his presidential address for ASA, the Association of Sociology, I think. Mm-hmm. I forget what it stands for. ASA. Yeah, that's it. He talks about racialized emotions, right? Where he talks, he really brings this idea that people's emotions are really associated with this racial hierarchy. So a lot of times when people make you feel good, it's a lot of times because there's a lot of connection. You see someone who reminds you of your childhood, or you see someone that you can connect with. But when race comes into play or when people of color come into play because it is a white space, they are, are, are white people or, or people in the racial majority, they say that um, people of color are the ones who bring race because before race didn't exist. Well, of course it didn't exist, but it did exist because yeah. in your perception, um, everything was normalized towards our interests. So when people who are, are, are um, pushing back or don't, they don't fit that model, uh, race becomes an issue because they're challenging the status quo. So I, I think I, I'm saying all of that because when you think about faculty hiring as a structure, it was designed by well, white faculty to hire other white faculty because yeah. it's about the history of higher education. That's what they use. And a lot of times during their smaller modifications, 
Um, it's a lot of times those changes don't really get the root axis of how these things uh, are, are connected to what we value in terms of knowledge, what we value in terms of um, image and, 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 and identities, what we value in practices, what we value in, in, in norms. Yeah, so yeah. That's the reason why I think even if, if we're, we're with, with that quote that you say that people don't have to be intentionally racist because when we think about uh, racism, especially from Eduardo Bonesova and other sociologists, they really connected to structures and cultures. Yeah. So in this case, um, faculty hiring as a structure, what it's doing is mediating these racist ideals that have been embedded in the mm-hmm. higher education. So even a person of color who, who doesn't really is uh, um, critical about these practices or because of power dynamics they feel they can push back, essentially they're also perpetuating these inequalities when they are using the same processes, right? Yeah. Whether they are intentionally doing it or whether they're trying not to do it because of their pre-tenure faculty, right? Yeah. Um, they're, they're within the system. So I think that's 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 why I said what I said in terms of like, you don't have to be individually racist because these structures are already racist. Yeah. Nah, yeah, man, that was... I, I love how you said that. And I think uh, I'm I'm hoping, and I'll probably talk about this later. Um, like I'm I'm hoping that folks who read this and folks who are hearing at this um, really interrogate their own practices. You know, when they're um, when when they're in like when they're on a, a search committee, right? When, when they're on that job committee, um, if they are in that position of power, right? Or and also just in their how, how they interact with other folks. You know, because um, I think yeah, this has direct application to that. You know, and ramifications. One of the things that I thought about when you were saying that, you know, uh, I forgot if, if it was when I was in the market or just in general, like in college. But I remember folks hearing about, yeah, a job interview is man, they, they want to see for someone uh, that they can have a beer with, you know, <laughs> what? Like, yeah. what, you know, when I think about that now, I'm like, what? <laughs> but but that's precisely it. You know, like if you only have beer with other white people, <laughs> you for damn sure ain't about to have beer with me. <laughs> That's real, man. You know? real. Yeah, yeah. I think it might have been, uh, oh, I think Laura Rivera, she's a sociologist. I think she might have said it, like, in terms of this idea of um, hiring. And it wasn't, in, in fact, to hiring, but it was hiring in general. Where, like, yeah. people often, people, especially when it comes to the campus visits, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, then, and then I'll share an example from my own experience um, where she was saying a lot of people, like people in the hiring committee, they ask themselves, can I, get my, can I see myself getting stuck with this person at the airport? And it goes back to what you were saying, right? In terms of like, well, will we be able to have those social conversations <laughs> when it doesn't afford anything, right? Like the same thing when you have a beer, like what do you do? You socialize, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then for me, like more, more on the personal aspect in terms of I think it's a really good example. When I was preparing for the job market, I knew this about myself. Like, I'm not super familiar with, like, not just white culture, but, like, yeah. middle-class, upper-class white culture in terms of, like, yeah. what do they talk about, like, um, in terms of sports, media, TV, whatever, you know? Like, that was my nerve-wracking. One of my mm. like, you know, Roman, I'm very confident that you're going to be, get, um, going to be a finalist, but one of the things that I think you're going to maybe you need to work on is, like, those social dynamics and those larger spaces. Meaning that you just need to be comfortable around white people in large spaces because every time I just don't know what to talk about, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to be fake. Yeah. Uh, but for, for one of the campus visits, I really, I remember the biggest thing that I that I studied beyond other stuff because I feel like really confident about it. Like, what, what do these white people like? What am I going to talk to them about? So a lot of my energy for like the dinner, um, the faculty dinner, um, it was really, I had to force myself to be very outspoken and so mm-hmm. fully like, and then I remember when I was talking about movies, I'm like, shit, <laughs> 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 because I'm making a movie, 
and I really don't know too much about it. Yeah. <laughs> what am I gonna do? <laughs> like those type of things. Like I mean, not I mean, I was very conscious of that, right? Part of it because I study it, but part of it because it's just that's what I'm being evaluated. Like you're totally. evaluating my scholarship. You every every time I see every time I publication, now you're trying to see if I if I align with your cultural norms in terms yeah. of social aspects. So that's that's what I'm saying. Like I mean, back to our conversation. Those are the reasons why. Like even though I don't think we're trying to be racist. Uh, these are white folks that have been embedded in these spaces that yeah. um, their own cultural uh, understandings of what makes a good colleague is also perpetuated in these, in, in these universities, right? So if they don't question those type of things, then um, you might um, unconsciously say, well, this he might not be a good colleague because he's not a good fit. And that's exactly. And no one knows what that means. You know, like, it, I mean, we know what it means, right? But like, that's that intangible thing, right? All the, right exactly. the intangibles. Um, yeah. I'm I'm also thinking about how like I could be very wrong about this, but it's on my it's on my spirit. But I'm also thinking about how like uh, you know sports commentators always hype up white players because they say, oh he just has any intangibles, oh he's a class act. <laughs> what like it's and I feel like in some ways that just shows like oh you just like you just like that person, <laughs> you know like you think you can grab a beer with that person and it's uh, <laughs> right. yeah. And, and, but I hear you. I mean the fact that you you know you're on these job visits, you're on these visits. And they're not, you know, they, they know you're competent about your work. They know you're a scholar, you know, T to what extent does it matter? You know, if I have seen X movie, you know, or, you know, if I like uh, IPA, you know, or I know anything about IPAs, like, thank God I know something about IPAs, you know, like, <laughs> I was told the beer scene is great in Cincinnati, you know, but it, it's, uh, but it's so much extra work for us, you know, like it's extra labor for folks who are not part of that dominant culture. And I, I right. hope folks listening think about that. Like, in what ways are you reproducing or reinscribing um, the dominant culture? You know, um, one of the things I also thought about when you, in, when you were talking is in that piece about racialized emotions, Bonilla Silva talks about like the hierarchy of emotions, right? So, uh, so, you know, like the way, so white people's comfort or, you know, uh, their fear, their, happiness or what they perceive as nice is valued more than what I perceive as rude, violent, and all types of messed up, right? Right. Right. And then the way you could express yourself, right? Once yeah, yeah. It, and then that's also racialized. Like, um, I may express a form of anger that maybe it's okay, I could, I could let it slide, you know? Yeah. Um, but if it was like a black woman, then it would have been like a totally different conversation. Like, <laughs> because it's all racial, like you said, like in yeah. hierarchy, like who's allowed to express themselves, but also how they express themselves and in what yeah. situations. Like that in itself, like as a as someone in the job market or as someone evaluating, you also need to be aware of those type of dynamics, right? Because yeah. um, those can also impact how people evaluate people, especially exactly on feelings. Like, can I can I have a beer with this person? And like. What if I say something that I'm not thinking about, um, and then this person kind of comes reacts the way they're reacting in this in this talk? Like how how that gonna make you feel? Whether they have a deep conversation internally about that or not, I'm sure that's gonna impact how they evaluate that. Yeah. Thing, right. Uh, but yeah, no. Thank you for bringing that up in terms of the the idea of, of emotions being racialized and structured in a similar hierarchy. Yeah, it, it's a yeah, man. It's a, it's a, it's so interesting, and I'm also thinking about you know just you know we're, when we're thinking about how, how people are allowed to react, right? Um, and I, I think this is big in the hiring and I think just general interactions, right? Like sometimes I know for me, 
um if i say that what some something what someone did was racist right um and like towards me that offended me they're allowed to you know be way more like oh how could you think that way way more like almost frustrated with me uh, you know sadness um e even offended that i would think that they're racist right meanwhile right. i i almost have to be stoic you know like i mean yeah. you know it's uh, just thinking about you know like e even though I, i'm keeping it together right now it's because i have to right because it, me being angry given that i am you know like a, a black man it's a lot different than you being angry that i said you were racist you know right right and it, and, it, and i think this is where where i think i like your when you, when you mentioned earlier in terms of like your identities one of one of the things that i think for, for my work that really informed because i did focus on agency but like um, yeah. a lot of um, scholarship from uh, critical race feminists when they talk mm -hmm. about social location in terms of like the, the intersecting dynamics of for example, for me, I am Latino, but I'm also a man, but I'm also yeah. an assistant professor, but I'm also a free tenure, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm in a school of education within this larger university. So I think I, I say that because I think uh, with, within the culture of niceness, those interactions within yourself and how you're situated within these larger power structures, they come into play in terms of like, um, how do you, what's appropriate in terms of like um, expressing yourself, right? Because there's so many yeah. norms, like, a good example, and, and it takes me back to, to our conversations with the PhD students in class, especially like the first couple of years, like there's an unspoken norm about how to talk about these meetings, like, right? Um, yeah, oh, totally. Of, of course, personal experiences are going to impact the way you interpret this information, but you can't just go off of that. Like there has to be uh, one thing before the other thing or interact. But I remember once you told me how you, <laughs> you observe a white colleague Because, yeah, like you said, like, it's still, we, we can know that it's wrong. We can know that it is racist, but we're still players in the game, right? <laughs> so that means I have to observe how seemingly successful players in the game or in the, you know, academic sphere, how they play, right? right. And in order, if I want to be successful, I have to, you know, to an extent, um, use that, right? So yeah. it, it's really interesting. And I think, you know, it's another way we're tasked with being observant. Um, I just, I guess... Uh, a couple more questions, then we're done. I want to be, you know, mindful of your time. Yeah. Um, and this is this is kind of in your article, but one thing I'm thinking about and I'm struggling with a lot more now, especially, um, is just labor, right? One thing I struggle with is labor and uh, racialized equity labor, right? Um, yeah. Like I, I forgot the scholars who mentioned that, uh, but just racialized equity labor. So just think about the labor that folks who are racially minoritized or in the, you know, oppressed group ha are tasked with. For example, right, like if, if there's a recommendation that uh, for job committees, you have a person of color sitting on a committee, right? right. That's work, you know, um, or um, just thinking about faculty voices and voices of color. 
sharing experiences of racism, you know, um, that's work too, you know, um, that's being vulnerable in front of people who potentially been, uh, really messed up to you, right? That's, that's work, that's labor. Um, and, and I can see how these things are useful, obviously for the, the greater good, right? But, but I mean, but how do you, how do you think about this type of labor or this type of work that, you know, uh, folks in the non-dominant groups are tasked with? Yeah, you know, that was, if, that was probably the biggest, the hardest things for me to do in this paper. Like, I was very close to not including, like, a lot of that text. Uh, and then, because I don't want to um, give out the signal to people who are not racially minoritized, like, in this case, the white faculty or white administrators yeah. saying, oh, you know, I just got to ask my white faculty, I mean, my faculty color to tell me about their experiences and use that as data, right? Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Like, yeah. That wasn't planned. That, I mean, yeah. that, I don't think it's never research specific context. The faculty color decided and they yeah. said, this, they need to hear this, they need the white faculty. So really this idea of reminds of the racial task, I think uh, Winfield talks about it. Um, but also the emotional labor behind it, right? Like who's being asked and tasked to do this? And I think for me, my thing is like not trying to someone read it and misinterpret that. Well, why that's this is all I got to do, right? Like no, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the literature that already exists, that you just pick up and do your own book research. Um, but I think I think to that point, um, oh man, it's, it's very tough. Like I I I I gotta I gotta think about it. But I guess the only way that I could one of the ways that, I, that I'm making sense of it right now is my own experience as, as a new faculty, knowing that yeah. this is my work. One of the things that, my, that, that in my current institution that some people got hyped up is like, oh, you're doing, this, you're doing this type of work and we're trying to do this type of work. Or yeah, but I'm being hired as a faculty, not as a, someone who, but I didn't say that, you know? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Someone who's being hired to do address these issues. If it's going to be computer work, right? That's cool, but it's gonna, I'm going to ask for like course for these people. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So those, those type of things, right? Like, um, yeah, you're hiring me, but that in itself, like, it's a form of labor that I'm providing outside of my immediate responsibility mm-hmm. as a faculty member, right? And I recognize that, but at the same time, like, what pressure would I feel if I'm being asked to take on this this load where a lot of my other colleagues might not be being asked to do that? Yeah. Um, and then, and then it, it goes, I think, beyond questions of fairness, like, but it really about inequalities and injustices and how it continues to reproduce it. But all that to say is... um. I don't know. It's a tough one. Um, I, I think it's really, really hard. And I think, um, and I feel like I'm not answering the question, but one thing that helps me think about these issues, at least when I navigate as a person, but also when I think about it as a researcher, is, um, oh, I forget his name. He's a Latino faculty at USC uh, who spoke with, like, the, the Latinx PhD collector when I was there. Um, mm-hmm. He had mentioned that, you know, you got to understand your purpose and why you're doing what you're doing. At least for me, it was, it made me remind me, like, why did I decide to get a PhD? Why did I decide yeah. to do the work that I'm doing? I think for me, it was like the idea that I, one, that I felt like I was pretty good at research, but also felt like that I could do some change with my research in terms of like um, policy change and, and change at the practice level, but also realize the power of being spaces as a mentor yeah. um, and then how other students see um, there's a possibility that you made it. We come from the same places, so I can make it, right? Yeah. So for me, when, when I realized that and I accepted it, um, I, fit, I I saw more the value that other people see in me, like especially in my community, and then but also recognize the value that I bring. And then it made me just be comfortable with saying, you know, I'm, this is the type of work that I do, but also I'm not going to be, um, hopefully I don't get taken advantage in terms yeah. of these racialized tasks. So I think I, think I, I say all that, um, 
it helps me understand like what is it an appropriate ask for my university or my department and what is not and what am I willing to yeah. especially if it's at the individual level because these racial tasks are very real and even with people who are top scholars they're still being racialized yeah. being asked to do these type of tasks or this this type of labor I think the article that you specifically talk about um, you're talking about they really emphasize on student labor um, racial mm-hmm. equity labor right and a lot of universities are really this type of labor um, yeah. What the outcomes of the labor, right, to to benefit them as a university, right? It kind of reminds me of of, of um, racial capitalism um, in terms of like how these white universities are continuing to benefit themselves from the labor of people of color. In this case, uh, they're putting the task on students yeah. of color. A lot of staff of color oftentimes carry the heavy load on these on these tasks of equity, diversity, inclusion. And then a lot of times the university leadership, they get the benefits and the rewards, and then they just forget about the people who are doing that type of labor. Um, granted, that the faculty that I study are in positions of power in comparison yeah. to students and and, um, and staff, but at the same time, like, that's the issue, right? Like, um, I really don't think I answered your question. But... No, 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 that's it, man. I mean, I wanted you to, I don't, I don't think I, there is an answer to it, right? It's something that I think we we struggle with, and I think as like, you know, you and me both as faculty of color, like, you know, junior scholars is something that we we have to struggle with, you know, and I'm hoping that, you know, those who are listening, those who are in positions of power, faculty, students, what have you, you also think about uh, the tax that you you may be facing or you may be putting on your colleagues, right? right. Um, and if you, you know, this is the thing that I think about a lot of the work that I do, mentoring work, um, you know, work with black students in particular, I would want to do regardless, you know. Um, however, the university or the college or whatever can signal that they appreciate that work, you know. Right. Um, and that says something about the university, you know, like it, like it, either you show me in material ways that you appreciate this work, you know, um, or you don't. Either right. way, like I know what type of, I, I, either way you're saying, you're signaling something to me. You know, um, so that's the thing that I'm thinking about. Um, I guess, you know, just last question, you know, this is a broad question again. Um, you know, this class is about equity and diversity in higher education. We have PhD students, master students, and folks who are just kind of interested in the topic. Um, what, what do you want them to think about as they learn more uh, throughout this course or as they seek to learn more about diversity and equity in higher ed? Yeah, you know, I think always be like i don't know i guess one of the biggest things that i can think about is i kind of alluded to it earlier like a lot of people when you think about equity they interchangeably like the, the language like they they use it, equity equality and diversity and inclusion interchangeably yeah. i think that's one thing like in terms of like when you're going into these spaces even if you take a frame of like racial equity um, a lot of these people in power, they don't think about it in the same ways, right? They yeah. oftentimes uh, conflate it with like, equality, uh, inclusion, like this idea of multiculturalism. So I guess for me, just like just understanding the differences and understanding how people in power are very strategic and very, very smart yeah. you know, with the culture and the norms to go around what you want to do with the work you want to do, right? I think that's one, like, and then being aware, reminding yourself that those are the spaces that you're going to be entering or currently mm-hmm. working in, because at least for me, I always try to anticipate things in order to minimize my laboring, uh, my emotions, my expectations, because to me, it's just like, 
Um, if you can just if you are straight out resistant, they they're gonna be resistant. Like I exactly. continue going at it and just it's gonna negatively impact me as, as a person. Um, because I always go back to the students, like that's who I really care about. And if I'm mm-hmm. 100 percent then how am I gonna be there for my students type of thing? Um, the other thing is um, not being afraid to take up space. I mean, it's hard to do. Like I, I know it's really hard, but try not to take up space. I mean, try not not be afraid of taking up space because um, if you're invited for a committee, then uh, take up the space, you know, like yeah. maybe people are not going to listen to you. Maybe they will. Um, but don't be afraid to speak, speak your, your, your mind, right? Uh, speak the, speak the, the purpose of doing the work. Yeah. So those are two things that I, that come to mind. Like, don't be afraid of take up space and just being aware of potential forms of resistance, like knowing the context that you go into, so you won't be like, um, something that comes from the side, even though it's yeah. <laughs> No, for sure. Well, Ramon, thank you so much for taking your time to uh, chat with me. And I know my uh, students will be there, very thankful to uh, to hear this. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Of course. <laughs> so in this time of renewed commitments and statements from universities, departments, and businesses about racial equity, We need to move beyond niceness. We need to move beyond race neutrality. We need to get real. So I'll end this podcast with a quote from Dr. Liera himself. Numerous universities and colleges have publicly announced their commitment to hiring racially minoritized faculty. As this study showed, creating a racially equitable hiring process requires the investment of senior administrators and faculty to spend time and have honest conversations about the ways their practices and organizational culture impede racial equity efforts.